This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa giving you news from an African perspective, broadcasting from Johannesburg. We are online on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Kumbero Munjerere. Coming up on the show today, Zimbabwe's main opposition strongly condemns violent attack by the police on citizens who had peacefully gathered outside the party headquarters. Today marks World Pancreatic Cancer Day. In economics, trade union solidarity files a case at the High Court in Johannesburg to, sub- to subject SAA ways to a business rescue. And in sport, Mozambique coach Dario Monteiro names a preliminary squad of 27 players for the Kosafa Men's Under-20 Championships. All this and more coming up on the show. But first, the news with Onel Nzinzi. Thank you, Kumbero. Authorities in Mozambique have been urged to release 18 members of an opposition party who were arrested during last month's disputed poll. A group of 30 African and international civil society and rights groups, including Amnesty International, Freedom House, Southern Africa Legislative Centers, and dozens others of regional Mozambican and Angolan rights organizations said the detainees had been denied access to lawyers and forced to confess to wrongdoing. Incumbent Philippine UC won a new five-year term after his Free Limo party secured 73% of the vote, but the credibility of the results has been questioned by the European Union and various other local and international observer groups. A funeral service has been held for the slain soldiers in Mali. The Defense Ministry held the service for the 30 soldiers in the city of Gao. The soldiers were killed this week during an attack on an army patrol by extremists near the border with Niger. Malayan army spokesperson said the toll rose from 24 to 30 from Monday's mug. More than 100 Malayan soldiers have died in the past two months in attacks by armed groups linked to organizations such as Islamic State Group and Al-Qaeda. Corruption charges against Sri Lanka's newly elected leader, Gotabai Rajapaksa, have been dropped as a result of the immunity from prosecution he has acquired as president. He'd been inducted in by a special high court set up by the outgoing government. The BBC's Electra Naismith has more. It was while Defence Secretary under administration led by his brother Mahinda that Gotabaya Rajapaksha is alleged to have siphoned off state funds to build a museum and memorial to his parents. But under Sri Lanka's constitution, court proceedings can't be maintained against a serving president. The charges have been set aside and his passport, which had been impounded, has been returned. It came as Gotabaya Rajapaksha swore in his brother Mahinda as Prime Minister, paving the way for a minority government led by the men credited with crushing Sri Lanka's Tamil insurgency a decade ago. 
Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari has committed his country to being open defecation-free by 2025. This is, according to a series of tweets by his spokesperson Garba Shehu, more than 20% of Nigerians do not have access to toilet, a statistic that the president has described as disturbing. Nigeria is ranked second amongst the nations in the world with the highest number of people practicing open defecation, estimated at over 46 million people. Lastly, the authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo say nearly 5,000 people have died in the world's largest outbreak of measles. The contagious disease is said to have reached every district of the country, infecting more than 240,000 people. Most are children under the age of five. Channel Africa News, I am Onelintzintzi. Thank you, Onele. Now, Zimbabwe's main opposition uh, movement for democratic change, MDC, has strongly condemned the violent attack by the police on the citizens who had peacefully gathered outside the party headquarters in Harare. Zimbabwean police yesterday used batons, tear gas and water cannons to dispense supporters who had gathered outside its building in the capital to listen to a speech by their leader. Hundreds of police blocked roads leading to MDC headquarters, but supporters continued to gather singing and chanting before the arrival of party leader Nelson Chamisa, who was set to address them. A few minutes after Chamisa entered the party building, police charged the crowd with batons and fired tear gas, causing a stampede. The MDC says the kind of brutality is totally unacceptable in Zimbabwe. More from the party leader Nelson Chamisa, spokesperson Dr. Nkululeko Sibanda. Look, the brutality was not expected. It is beyond what everybody has ever thought would be done by anybody for any particular reason. You have never seen a more peaceful crowd of people that had no other intention but to listen to their president uh, speak to them on the basis of a hopeful message as we're going towards Christmas, but also looking at our country beyond the Christmas period and how people will learn, would have had to or will have to face the difficult times during the festive season. So it was a message of peace and hope, and uh, clearly that was turned into a brutality you've not never seen before that targeted women simply because they don't run just as fast as, the, as their, their male counterparts and uh, they were being treated onto the floor, breaking their legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had 66-year-olds being uh, injured yesterday. It is just not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, having seen what I saw yesterday, you know, it was Mandela who said that when, when you deny people the right to live a life that they should, you leave them no choice but mm-hmm. to become outlaws. And I think that uh, the Mnangawa government is certainly brewing for conflict in the region. And the regional leaders must be looking at uh, the serious security threat that uh, this Babo regime has become. Its philosophy is completely based on violence. And that should not be acceptable, not just to Zimbabweans, but to the region and the world at large. Mm. Doctor, was there um, adequate permission granted for the gathering to take place um, yesterday? And what was the purpose of the gathering? I was in a, in a four-hour meeting with the, the regulating authority, the police uh, force, on Thursday last week, where they said they'd write a letter, and they did write a letter on Monday, 
denying us uh, authority to have a meeting in public, which means we could then take that meeting into a private space, and our headquarters is a private space. So for that reason, and obviously, uh, President Chamisa is very popular in this country. If he's going to give a speech, you're going to have a lot of crowds coming through, which is why we had initially asked for a public place where you'd have those people gather outside the road that the police saying, say that they were beating people for. Now, they created a situation where you would have more people than the building can contain. And then they say that that, that now has become a problem. Uh, it seems to me as though the issue of permission itself should not be an issue. Our constitution guarantees citizens of this country the right to publicly demonstrate, publicly gather, and that the police have no right to ban any gathering. They need to be informed so that they can prepare to protect the crowd and to maintain the peace. They are convoluting the idea of being informed to, uh, and interpreting it as if they have got to sanction, they have got to allow people to exercise constitutional rights, the rights that they must have at best without any hindrance. So clearly, we have a serious problem here where we have a regime that uh, believes in violence and wants to sustain itself on the basis of violence and thinks that they have to kill people seriously mm. in order to prevent anybody ever thinking about demonstrating against them. And I think that shouldn't work. And I think that Sadiq should not allow this kind of situation. President Chamisa warned yesterday that the fact that he runs a peaceful party doesn't mean that uh, the party, yeah. its members and yeah. the country at large are stupid. And we are literally banned in this country. ZANU-PF doesn't want us. The region shouldn't want any political party in this region to think that uh, it is a banned organization and begin to act on the basis of being a banned organization. Yeah. Well, Doctor, what then becomes your next step um, in terms of uh, taking action against this uh, police brutality you speak of? Look, I think what uh, uh, Nangagwa is doing, what this regime is doing, this Bhutto regime is doing, it is drawing lines in the sand. It is saying to the people of this country, you will have no space to breathe until you fight for it until you grab it. And I think this is a dangerous situation, and it seems to me as though we're itching closer and closer every day to a situation where people see the police and the military as their enemy. And we don't want to get to that stage, and I hope that this regime and the region can act before the people begin to free themselves. That's um, MDC party leader Nelson Chamisa, spokesperson Dr. Nkululeko Sibanda on the line talking to Zika Namiso. Now, vote count is underway following Ethiopia's Idema region's referendum that many expect will approve the creation of a new federal state. The vote completed yesterday is seen as a critical test in a nation already struggling with community tensions. Some observers say it could inspire other ethnic groups to push for autonomy and redraw boundaries in Ethiopia, Africa's second most populous country with more than 100 million people. The vote came after more than 10 people died in clashes in July between security forces and Sidama activists after the government delayed the poll by five months. For more on what to expect after the vote, I spoke to William Davison, senior researcher on Ethiopia with the International Crisis Group. He was on the line from the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. Broadly, I think it does look like um, eventually we're not 
sure of the schedule by any means, but it does look like Prime Minister um, Abiy Ahmed eventually wants to move the country some distance away from its current um, so-called ethnic federal model, um, in which states which have a very strong ethnic character um, also have a great deal of autonomy within the federation. So whilst the signs are from um, Prime Minister Abiy and his allies that they want to move in a in a different, ultimately sort of more classically liberal direction, I guess, the Sadama movement to create their own state, the 10th state in the federation, and to provide themselves with more autonomy is very much in line with the old old thinking and very much in line with the ethnic federal constitution. So there's a clear sure. tension there. Now, of course, uh, a major sticking point will be the status of uh, the capital, Hawassa, which uh, the Sidama are eyeing as uh, the capital of uh, their state. But only about half of uh, the population there is Sidama, which should make this uh, a hotly contested issue if uh, the referendum passes. How should this issue be resolved, do you think? Well, what's happened is that the existing regional government, the, the state council, has decided that Hawassa city administration will be accountable to a new Sadama state government sure. um, if, if Sadama state is created. But they've also agreed um, that the existing regional government can stay in Hawassa for up to 10 years whilst it finds a, a new location and I guess whilst withdrawal issues are resolved. So that deals with one of the problems. Um, and then I think you know everyone needs to sort of focus their best energies on ensuring that the creation or the implementation of a Sadama state is not at the disadvantage of existing non-Sadama residents and businesses. Of course, there's concerns. Some political activists and leaders see this as an opportunity to increase their wealth, status, power sure. at the expense of others. But it doesn't have to be like that. If this referendum passes as is um, expected, would this mean the demise of the Southern Ethiopian People's Democratic Movement, the regional ruling party, or will it survive after the Sidama get their state, do you think? It will survive initially, but because of the... Sadama bid for their own state um, and because of similar bids for referendums to form their own states from 10 other um, ethnic administrations in the south. That whole sort of multi-ethnic unit, whether at the party level or the state level, the regional level, has been under pressure. But for now, this will just be a process of the Sadama leaving and the rest of the south um, staying together. And then we will have to see what the future holds. And then, of course, the other important element here is that currently Prime Minister Abiy is trying to create a single national party out of the coalition that the SEPDM is part of. So there's also that process that the, the party is undergoing. Now, this vote comes uh, before next year's general election, which uh, Prime Minister Abiy has promised will be free and fair. Uh, but we know that previous elections going back to 2005 were marred by irregularities, violence and clampdowns by security forces. What kind of tone has uh, this Sidama vote set in the run-up to next year's general election? I think we can look at that from two directions. I think it shows, it exposes, you know, this key fault line in Ethiopian politics between those who believe in an ethnic federal arrangement with autonomy for ethnic groups within a multi-ethnic federation and those who think that that is the problem um, in, with the Ethiopian state and with Ethiopia and it's driving people apart. So we can see that the opinions on the Sadama process um, exposes that fault line and that is a fault line that looks like it will very much be present during the general election next year. The flip side is that 
when it got round to actually holding the referendum yesterday, sure. um, it was a fairly peaceful affair. And also the electoral board ended up administering it and, and preparing for it in quite a competent way. And so, of course, those are positive signs for a competitive and but peaceful election next year. The federal government intervened a few months ago and declared that the military takes control of the Sidama region until the situation calms down. Is the military still in charge of the region? Yes, and actually it's uh, much broader than the Sadama zone. It's the whole of the southern region, um, which there has essentially been a federal takeover of security management. Um, that was put in place following the violence in July in Sadama. It's still in place, um, and I think that's had quite an important effect in terms of quietening down political activity and focusing both the Sadama uh, leaders and, 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 and protesters and activists and the officials, it's, it's focused their minds on just proceeding and holding the referendum. It looks like the, the security arrangements are going to stay in place for some time. And so that will have effect, have the effect of suppressing uh, political activity associated to the other autonomy demands. And then we have to see um, what kind of political momentum there is there when the security situation is eventually relaxed. That's uh, William Davison, a senior researcher with the International Crisis Group on the line from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. I spoke to him earlier. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Building up to the annual 16 Days of Activism, the African Renaissance and Diaspora Network, ARDN, an international non-profit organization, will be launching a red card campaign. This will seek to obtain a minimum of 1 million commitments by the 2022 Federation of International Football Association, Association FIFA World Cup to fully respect every other human being, regardless of gender, culture, color, language, social origin, birth or religion, hence to put an end to all forms of discrimination and violence against women, girls and people with disabilities. More from Lerato Nkuna, Programs Manager for ARDN. Red Card Campaign is a campaign that was launched by an organization, a non-profit organization called Aiden. Um, Aiden is headquartered in New York City, and uh, during the uh, Women's World Cup earlier this year, 
in Italy. It was um, launched um, in partnership with the UN and FIFA. And um, the reason we chose to to launch it at um, the, the Women's World Cup is because of the audience that sport is able to afford um, any um, sort of brand or any message that can be delivered. Um, so at the World Cup, it was launched, and it was to say that we're giving a red card to all types of discrimination um, and violence against women and children. And with that launch, um, we then were given the directive around the world as part of Aden to do our own red card campaigns within our regions. So in South Africa, we adopted uh, the red card campaign saying that uh, we, we, we really stand against um, all types of discrimination and violence against women, children, and added people with disabilities as well, because in South Africa, that is quite um, a, a priority focus, because there's not enough publicity or focus on, on people, persons with, with disabilities. Mm. So with that, under the UN, there is um, sustainable development uh, goals that are set out by the UN and the world leaders. There's about 17 of them that focus on different things. So we chose um, the SDG that focuses on on uh, gender equality because of uh, what's happening in our region with all the violence that is happening, this gender-based violence that has just uh, sparked out in our region. So we chose to adopt that and to align it with November as a month that highlights activism against um, gender-based violence, which will be launched on the 25th, and also um, a campaign that is going out, going on throughout the month of November, which highlights uh, the rights of persons with disabilities. So us having it on the, on the 23rd of, of, of November, the 22nd and the 23rd of November, is truly just being in the middle of, of all of these efforts to try and highlight these issues that we're having um, in our country. So building up to the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, what's your take on the gender-based violence in South Africa, looking back at all the violence that occurred in 2019? I mean, it's, it's with like everyone, it is it's really concerning and alarming the rate at which the, these social ills have grown, especially the, the gender-based violence. I mean, We've always had that issue, um, but it's it's just accelerating at an alarming rate, and we we can't just um, you know be quiet. There's got to be as many people from every angle of of this country speaking up about it. I mean, we can't just rely on on one organization or one campaign that the government does. I think everybody who is a citizen of this country needs to really stand up against um, against what is happening. It's truly something that no one knows how to really resolve as yet. So it's it's going to take a lot of dialogue. We've got to bring everybody around the table. We can't just even look at men as the only um, you know source of this issue. There's clearly some social underlying issues that um, are societal related that uh, we need to sit down and understand the different angles that perpetuate these issues. And uh, let's talk about the open march. When is it taking place and what exactly will you be marching for? Okay, it's taking place on the 23rd of November, which is this coming Saturday. Uh, From 7 a.m., we'll be marching from um, the bottom of Mandela Bridge. There's a, a park, an open park just on the south of Mandela Bridge where they do, I think, um, driving tests. In Johannesburg. In Johannesburg, in Newtown. 
just between uh, Newtown and, and, and Bramfontein. Then we'll go up to the top of uh, Mary Fitz, um, of uh, Nelson Mandela Bridge and march all the way to Mary Fitzgerald Square in, in, in Newtown. And uh, the march is really to say, once again, we are saying we're giving a red card to all forms of, of, of discrimination and uh, violence against women, girls, and persons with disabilities. And the, the objective of the march is to have people pledge. We need to collect about one million pledges that we can take to the global launch in March, where we, which will be held um, at the UN headquarters, where we will show as South Africa that we're standing together to say we, we are giving a red card to the social ills. And for those who'd like to come through to the march and the launch of the campaign, how do they go about it? I mean, it's an open march for Saturday. On, on, on Saturday morning, as I said, at 7 o'clock, we can meet in Newtown. There will be a shuttle from... Um, from uh, Mary Fitzgerald Square to take us to the starting point. But if you are able to just get yourself to the bottom of um, of, of the Nelson Mandela Bridge, there will be um, um, marshals who will be pointing to where we start and we can all um, march um, from Nelson Mandela Bridge all the way to Mary Fitzgerald Square. That's uh, Leraton Kuna, Programs Manager for the African Renaissance and Diaspora Network, talking to Libohang Mabange. The global health community is today marking World Pancreatic Cancer Day. Pancreatic cancer is considered the world's toughest cancer with the lowest survival rate of all major cancers. Among those who have succumbed to the cancer this year is British-born musician and one of South Africa's most loved hitmakers, Johnny Clegg. More from Professor Michael Herbst, a clinical health specialist at the Cancer Association of South Africa. You know, pancreatic cancer is, as its name would indicate, it is cancer of the pancreatic gland, which is situated in the abdomen, and it is sort of below the liver and half behind the stomach. And it has two major functions. The one function is a digestive function, that the pancreas produces some of the digestive juices that goes into the small intestine and then assists with the digestion of all the uh, various sugary uh, substances that we eat. And it also has an endocrine function, and that is it produces hormones that goes directly into the bloodstream that regulates, amongst other things, our level of blood sugar. So mm-hmm. that is where the pancreas is mm-hmm. and its major functions, and one can get cancer of the pancreas, either of the Mm. digestive part of it or the endocrine part of it. Now, out of all the cancers, you know, it is said that this is certainly one of the ones that's most aggressive and uh, with the lowest survival rate. Of course, we lost our beloved Johnny Clegg this year to it. What seems to be so difficult around making sure that the survival rate is higher for this particular cancer? You know, the problem around pancreatic cancer is that there aren't really very any early warning signs that somebody may have it. The worst is that they may complain of a little bit of abdominal discomfort and so, but really no pain and, and all that type of thing until the disease is very advanced. And that is what makes it so very difficult to diagnose and to suspect 
But we know one thing, and uh, we do know that there are certain risk factors involved in uh, pancreatic cancer. And I think one of the most uh, obvious ones is people who have a Jewish ancestry. Uh, Johnny Clegg, who mm. from mm. his mother's side, he had a Jewish ancestry. And in those people, we will find a particular gene mutation of the BRCA2 gene in some of the Jewish families. Oh, that's certainly then, very interesting. Mm. Then the other risk factors will be smoking. Mm-hmm. And uh, men are 30% more likely to develop pancreatic cancer than women would. And then, you know, drinking alcohol regularly is another risk factor. And then especially type 2 diabetes. This is the mature type of diabetes that people get when they're 50 years and older. And we refer to as type 2 diabetes. They are more inclined also to uh, get pancreatic cancer. Now, when we look at uh, the causes, I mean, I know you've highlighted one's genetic makeup can also make one prone to it. But what are some of the major uh, causes? You've also mentioned smoking as one of the cause for this. Just take us through a few of those before we wrap up, Prof. Great. We know that African-Americans also are more inclined to develop pancreatic cancer than whites. I've mentioned smoking as a problem. Physical inactivity is one of the others, but this is linked to so many of the other uh, cancers as well, as is obesity and the diabetes, especially type 2 diabetes I mentioned. And uh, then we know that there are also more pancreatic cancers amongst people who work with pesticides, dyes, and various of the heavy metal chemicals. And... uh, that mm. is, a, is about really the major causes, causes and yeah. factors involved. Mm. And uh, Prof, in terms of uh, reducing the risk of developing pancreatic cancer, what is that looking like? And are there any new treatments out there? You know, very, very little research is successful in finding a proper cure for uh, pancreatic cancer. And we know that the... Uh, major treatments at the moment would be surgery, which may remove part or all of the pancreas, and uh, because sometimes the whole of the pancreas cannot be removed. We know that radiation therapy can, to a certain extent, assist in uh, lengthening the person's uh, period of staying alive, and then chemotherapy. But uh, Mm. those are about the major things as far as treatment is concerned. Mm. But lifestyle changes on early diagnosis is very important. And that is to stop smoking, to Mm. totally stop any alcohol intake. And be active, right? To work hard Mm. at preventing diabetes. Mm. All right, that's uh, Professor Michael Habst, uh, a clinical uh, health specialist at the Cancer Association of South Africa, talking to Zico Nami. So it is uh, half past five Central African time, time for the news headlines with uh, Onel Nzinzi.
A grave of 145 people has been discovered under a high school in Tampa in the U.S. state of Florida. A funeral service has been held for the slain soldiers in Mali and authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo say nearly 5,000 people have died in the world's largest outbreak of measles. Channel Africa News, I am Onelinsinsi. Thank you, Onele. Now, as part of a global effort to minimize the impact of fraud and white-collar crime around the world, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners established International Fraud Awareness Week 19 years ago to raise awareness on fraud. Zakir Mohammed, Director in Corporate Investigations Sector of the Dispute Resolution Practice from Clive Decker of Mayer, one of South Africa's full-service business law firms, says that this is an opportune time for every organization in the country and across Africa to consider the importance of raising fraud awareness among their employees. More from Zakir Mohammed. In, in any business environment, organizations face numerous risks. These risks stem from employees, from business partners, from suppliers, as well as unknown third parties, especially in the case of cybercrime. Now, occupational fraud is the risk of fraud that organizations face from their employees. And this is quite a key risk that organizations face because at the end of the day, employees have access to the company's assets, they have access to the company's confidential information, the intellectual property of the organization. And if I can use an example of the Trojan horse, employees and and especially a fraudulent employee, someone that you're getting into the doors of the organization and they have access to all of your assets. Um, And so they pose a significant risk of perpetrating fraudulent conduct within an organization. Now, take us through the damage that fraud can cause for the reputation of an organization. So, so there's two there's, there's, there's two damages that an organization faces. The obvious one is obviously the financial risks, but from a reputational perspective, that risk is is, is unquantifiable and can be significant uh, or can cause significant damage to an organization. Because, for example, if there's been data theft or the leak of confidential client information from an organization, the result of that would be a loss of client confidence in the organization. And so that may also result in a loss of business. And we know that it takes a a very long time for an organization to build up its goodwill and its reputation. Um, But with a significant data breach or incident of fraudulent activity, that reputation can be tarnished um, and it will be difficult um, to come back from that kind of reputational damage. Um, And we've seen this in the last two years with numerous media reports of organizations that have suffered reputational damage. So what are the legal consequences of being caught committing fraud? If an individual or employee has been caught committing fraud, there are numerous legal repercussions. The first one would be a disciplinary inquiry process against the employee, which may result in the dismissal of, of that employee uh, from his or her place of work. The second one would be uh, possible civil recovery proceedings against the employee to recover the monies um, that were misappropriated through fraudulent activity. And the third one would be the registration of a criminal case uh, against the employee, which may result in a criminal prosecution and possible jail time. 
So how can businesses legally mitigate the risk of um, fraud within their business? So there's numerous um, measures that an organization can implement. Um, it, organizations need to have an effective compliance program to mitigate against the risk um, of fraudulent activity. The starting point would obviously be setting the right tone at the top of the organization, um, and that would be senior management um, expressing that there will be a zero tolerance towards fraudulent activity in the organization. Um, another measure would be conducting a risk assessment to identify the various fraud risks that the organization faces, and this is particularly important because once the uh, specific risks are identified, then the correct measures can be implemented um, to mitigate those particular risks, and also the resources can be directed at the um, proper point of risk. Then organizations also need to have the necessary internal controls as well as processes and procedures to mitigate these risks. Um, these will also include having effective policies and procedures in the organization so, organize, so employees know what standard of behavior is expected of them. There needs to be checks and balances, segregation of duties. Uh, when it comes to the payment of certain amounts, there should be different authorization levels. Organizations also need to have an effective incident response plan. And this is particularly important because if there has been an incident of fraudulent activity, there needs to be a plan in place of how the particular incident will be dealt with in the organization. And lastly, before I let you go, it's International Fraud Week. So what's supposed to happen in this week? So International Fraud Week, just to start with some background, it was established by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners in, in the year 2000. It's a dedicated time to raise awareness about fraud. Um, so International Fraud Week uh, this year started on the 17th of November um, and it ends on the 23rd of November. Um, this week-long campaign is part of a global effort to minimize the impact of fraud and white-collar crime around the world. So generally what should happen at a practical level is uh, people can take part in seminars, um, they can distribute pamphlets, uh, they can read up about fraud and create awareness in the organization of the fraud risks um, that the various organizations face. Um, individuals can write articles about fraud just to create awareness um, about this particular business risk that most organizations face. That's uh, Zakir Mohammed, the Director in Corporate Investigation Sector of the Dispute Resolution Practice from Clive Dekahoff, Mayor on the line, talking to Lebohang Mabange. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. Longitudinal health research studies conducted in South Africa, Brazil, Guatemala, 
and the Philippines have concluded that early child development and ensuring that all children stay in school are the keys to ensuring that these children maximize their intellectual potential. The investigators aiming to generalize data and analysis to inform health interventions in developing countries formed the consortium on health-orientated research in transitioning societies or cohorts. This collaboration is the first of its kind in the global south. More from Leitu Kapuyeja, the manager of the Center of Excellence in Human Development hosted by Vets University. This is absolutely key. So this is what the study found, that by the way, if they stay in school, definitely the IQ is going to be able to be competitive later on. So they have to stay. And remember, when we do research, we test for various things. So we are able to see that those who are in the group that we're researching, but they fell out of school in the process, what happened to them later in life. So there's data that can show that. And then in the same populations that we're researching, we're able to show that those who did stay and exactly what happened in later outcomes. So they got better jobs. You know, they're able to take their families out of sort of the dire circumstances that they were born in because now they are able to compete in the economy and so on. They can be business people. They can, you know, sort of have a high level jobs and so on. So those are the things that, when you look at it from a research perspective, it's an interesting finding, as we call it. But from a policy perspective, it will change the way a country could think about how to support its people. And this is why this is so important for our policymakers to start to see that, hold on, staying in school is not just about getting a person educated. It's actually about making them and the country much more competitive. And even though the person could have been born poor and stunted, but if they stay, it means the higher chances of them being able to get themselves out of poverty, but also the people that depend on them. What are some of the reasons why kids don't stay in school up until matric in the context of South Africa, for instance? Did your study find anything different from what was previously known? So there are many aspects of why, and I'm sure it's been widely discussed. And kids are not able to stay in school for a variety of reasons. They are mainly based around the issue of accessing good schools. So there is the real thing of school being far away, So people cannot really go to school. It's not affordable because I have to travel long miles to finally get to school. And so it disrupts my schooling. There's the real thing, especially in our continent, of certain genders not being seen as having to go to school because what they will do later in life, for instance, women later in life, they're going to get married early, have kids. Therefore, they don't really need to stay in school. They don't contribute to the family pot. So therefore, there is no need for them. So those things were definitely coming out. Again, stuff that is not really surprising that other researchers picked up on. South African context, there's issues really around affordability of certain kinds of schools. And I think this is where it also gets very interesting that our study showed that you stay in school, it's important, but they haven't yet, and this is where the next round is going, they haven't yet shown what kind of school you need to stay in to have the high IQ later Mm -hmm. on because the quality of schooling is also something that we are saying, surely there must be something here. It should matter, you know, what kind of school you're going to for you to be able to be competitive later on. And so I think we're picking up on these things that the quality of schooling is also quite important. Therefore, we're going to continue to test and see this kind of information and what it says. But over and above everything led to, where do you think the beauty of the cohorts lie? Are there any lessons to draw from here, especially in as far as policymaking is concerned? So here's the beauty of cohorts. So the title cohorts is a consortium of health-oriented research in transitioning societies. We are liking that the cohorts currently and the five sites are sort of Global South sites which means there is lessons that we can learn from Global South Dynamic that we can share. It makes policy making much more robust. 
when you can cross-examine across different sites that share similar kind of dynamics, but they have some differences, especially in you know, where they are in their development trajectory and so on. So where you can compare us to Brazil to a certain extent on certain aspects, but Brazil is ahead of us on certain aspects. So we can assume very quickly and easily that, well, hold on, when, when our country's development tends to shift in the Brazil way, we should be able to now use our research that we did with Brazil to say, let's strategically move in that direction too, because this is what the value of research is mm. across many sites. And so what should we take away? Let's take away, first of all, the value of longitudinal research. Let's take away the fact that if you're going to do a study for this long and invest in it long enough, it's going to have good advice for you on how to shape your policy in your country. So let's put more money in it and let's make sure that it is given its platform in policymaking. Secondly, the collaboration between government and the researchers, whether it is private sector research or public sector research, sort of in based in universities like ourselves. There's value in partnering and looking at what these studies are saying. Because it starts to give us a better understanding of how we should be doing better in shaping our own policy environment. Policy making should not be something that we do just because now there's a protest and kids at schools are complaining about the quality of schooling. We should be doing policy advocacy through these processes. And this is an opportunity that we had with our Department of Science and Innovation and National Research Foundation where we sat together with our policymakers as well as some colleagues from line departments, so Department of Health, Social Development, and they were there. And we're able to sit and look at what these studies are saying and appreciate how we can work together going forward. And how did the different stakeholders receive your findings? They were well received. They were well received. We had the right audience in the room, and I think that matters. When people who work in research in the line departments, who work in policymaking, they appreciate the partnerships that we can create. And so they, were, they had good questions for us. They had the kind of questions that, you know, when the rest of the courts team were sitting in our office later on in the week and they were grappling with some of these questions. And we created the collaborations through the context that were exchanged and the ability for us to now to continue going forward with the conversation. Certainly, South Africa has its own court study, the Birth to 20 Plus study that is based at Wits University under the Developmental Pathways for Health Research Unit. We are able to now easily connect with them after this. We've had some exchange of invitations and we know that we're going to be following up with them because they now know the resource and what it can do. You know, we created the platform where we can start to work together. And that is fundamental. If you look at the early industrializers and you look at how much they valued the role of research in crafting a developmental pathway and you see where they are now. You see that if you partner with your researchers and you partner with industry and government working together and using evidence-based policy making, it's going to change the strategy of your development. And we don't have an excuse, by the way, because we are industrializing late. So there is value in it. Absolutely, there is a value in it. That's Aleitu Kapuyeja, manager of the Center of Excellence in Human Development hosted by Vets University in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lediha. The time now, it's about 15 minutes uh, to 6 Central African time. It is time for the latest economic news with Nosi Hezuma.
Thank you, Kumbelo. Good evening. There's good news for South African consumers. The Reserve Bank's Monetary Policy Committee, MPC, has announced that it will keep the repo rate unchanged at 6.5%. Yesterday, some economists said there was room for the bank to lower the repo rate because inflation is at its lowest rate in eight years. This after statistics, South Africa announced that the headline consumer price index fell to 3.7% in October, down from 4.1% percent the month before. The bank's governor, Lisecha Hanyaho, has told the media in Pretoria that the MPC has welcomed the sustained moderation in inflation outcomes. The MPC decided to keep the repurchase rate unchanged at 6.5 percent per annum. Three members preferred to keep interest rates on hold and two members preferred a cut of 25 basis points. Monetary policy actions will continue to focus on anchoring inflation expectations near the midpoint of the inflation target range in the interests of balanced and sustainable growth. Economist Owen Nkomo has predicted that unions won't be too happy about the Reserve Bank's monetary mo- policies committee's decision to leave the repo rate unchanged at 6.5%. The decision comes after Statistics South Africa announced that the headline consumer price index fell to 3.7% in October, down from 4.1% the month before. Ngomo says there may be a storm ahead. We have a bigger conversation in terms of driving the reduction in the fiscal deficit, in the budget deficit in the country. And I think that one could create room for interest rates to be, to be, to be reduced. But right now, if things go worse, think about ESCOM and all these challenges, yeah. downgrades that might be pending, and um, you know, interest rates going up, our fiscal metrics is going to worsen. It is already difficult for us to justify any expectations that things are going to be managed anytime soon, given the mid-term yeah. budget statement. Humanitarian Assistant Group Cooperating Partners has urged Zambia to work towards obtaining an international monetary fund program. The group says it's ready to support Zambia in its endeavor, describing the recent visit of an IMF team to the country as a sign that government is determined to engage with the IMF. Chinese Information and Communications Technology ICT Solutions provider Huawei is helping local app developers to access its local and international platforms on its devices. The company's deputy president for the Middle East and Africa, Likun Zhao, was speaking in Cape Town, South Africa, during Huawei's annual event to support local app developers. Huawei has over 1 million app developers registered globally and only 2,000 in South Africa. Since January, the company has sold over 2 million handsets worldwide. Zawa explains. We provide the home ecosystem, include uh, our hardware, include our chip, our devices, and uh, our cloud capability. And we provide our application. At the same time, we provide the third-party uh, application, and we provide the distribution platform and the tools for the local developer. So this is uh, the home system, the home structure for the local partners. And uh, so we encourage more and more local developer can join our ecosystem. 
Traders say the Kenyan shilling has surged against the dollar with inflows from offshore investors buying stocks and government debt exceeding dollar demand from merchandise importers. Commercial banks quoted the shilling at 101.25 to 45 per dollar compared with 101 to 45 to 65 at yesterday's close. Looking at your financial uh, financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 360.33 Nigerian Naira, 10.73 Bozona Bula at 100 Kenyan shilling, 40 cents, and at 13.98 Zambian Kwacha. In big currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.19 Brazilian Roll, 63.88 Russian Ruble, 71.60 Indian Rupee, 7.03 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.79 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,471 and platinum at $915 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $62.22 a barrel. Thank you for that update, Nosihe. Now it's time for the latest in the world of sport with Neto Chamani. Good afternoon, Neto. Thank you, Kumbelo. A very good afternoon and good afternoon to all the listeners. Starting off with athletics news. The International Association of Athletics Federation, IAAF, has sent an official invitation letter to Nigeria to participate in the 2020 World Athletics Indoor Championships in Nanjing, China. The 2020 World Athletics Indoor Championships, which will be staged inside the 13,000 capacity, the Nanjing Olympic Sports Center Gymnasium, will be in its 18th edition and will hold from March the 13th to the 15th in 2020. On to boxing news. Reigning World Boxing Organization WBO bantamweight champion Zolani Lasbontete is almost done with his preparations ahead of his title defense against Filipino counterpart John Reil Casimero. Tete and Casimero will meet at Arena Birmingham in England next Saturday. Uh, the preparations have gone very well. Prepared for Casimero for about four or five months now. Uh, trying to study him and to bring everything, every weapon that we can use against him. So we are well prepared for the fight and they will be leaving on Saturday, going to Birmingham for the fight. And uh, I believe we are more than ready for the fight. Uh, we've been doing what we normally do when we prepare for such big fights. Uh, Casimero, we didn't take him light. He's one of the best uh, in the division. So we've been working hard with all the sparring partners that Utamla has been organizing. Uh, the kind of training, different trainings that we've been doing for, for fitness. Uh, we even went for fitness tests in PE as we normally do. 
The former International Boxing Federation, IBF junior bantamweight champion, is happy that he will be fighting in England again. Tete has a big following in England after he won the hearts of the English boxing fans when he stopped Paul Butler, who was unbeaten at the time in March 2015. Yes, I'm very happy that uh, I'm fighting again in England. Uh, there's a lot of, of support there. I've got a support based system that is growing day by day. And I believe they can't wait as well to see me in the ring again. They've been asking where am I and how is the injury and all that. But now they're looking forward to the 30th. And, and I'm also happy that I'll be performing for them on the 30th of November. The 31-year-old Dede has not fought since his win over Russian Mikhail Aloyan in Russia in October last year. He was supposed to have fought against Nonito Filipino Flash Donaire in April this year, but that fight had to be called off after Dede injured his shoulder a few days before meeting the Filipino boxer. Yes, I haven't fought for a year now, and it's not quite a good thing. Uh, you need to be active, especially if you're a champion. But, you know, it's because of the injury, and there was nothing I could do. I had to rest the injury. I think the, the fight came at the right time. So I believe uh, come the 30th November, I'll still perform at my best level, and, and, and hopefully uh, there, won't end, there won't be any injuries again. And finally, in football news, Mozambique coach Dario Monteiro has named a preliminary squad of 27 players for the Kosafa Men's Under-20 Championship that will be staged in Lusaka, Zambia, from December the 4th to the 14th. Monteiro will be assisted by Luis Fumo. The youngest player on the list is 16-year-old forward Simone Peter Cipriano, with most players upon in either the year 2000 or 2001. Mozambique have been drawn in Group C at the tournament and open their campaign against Eswatini on December the 5th. They will meet Angola two days later in a crunch battle before closing out their pool play against Seychelles on December the 9th. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Itio Chamani. This is Africa Digest. Recapping our top stories this hour, Zimbabwe's main opposition strongly condemns a violent attack by the police on citizens who had peacefully gathered outside the party headquarters. And today marks World Pancreatic Cancer Day. And that wraps up Africa Digest today. For comments on the show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or you can tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is a song called Mkulum Sebenzi by Kayam Tetwa. Goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.